I invite you this morning to open to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, where I want to bring a message on what the resurrection demands of us. It is a true historical fact. It did happen. And what does that demand of us? What should we do in response? Now we're going to be looking at Acts 17, verses 30 through 34. And this is Paul preaching here. Paul's preaching a message. I want to go back and read to you from 22 all the way down so you can get the context. The context of Paul's message. And, and we're just going to zoom in on the end of it. And then, of course, the response to the message. Acts 17, starting in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now then, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Often when we think of the resurrection, when we consider Christ being raised from the dead, we might remember or consider one or two of the results, the things that Christ has done for us in that resurrection. We might think of that glorious and powerful work and how it applies to us. And if I was to quiz you on this, you might say something like, it's proof that the Father accepted the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And you would be right. Or you might say that when we consider the resurrection, it assures believers that we will not perish due to our sins. And that would be right as well. And the list could go on. You might say that we are thankful that it guarantees a future resurrection for every believer in Christ. If you were to look at the biblical doctrine textbook that we have over in the bookstore by MacArthur and Mayhew, you would see 20 achievements, 20 results at least that they can come up with that the resurrection did when Christ was raised again on the third day, at least 20 things that it did. And one of those, one of those we often don't think of, one of those we might not consider first on our list, is that the resurrection guaranteed that Christ would judge the world. Now, for believers, that's a good thing. And for unbelievers, as we'll see, that's not a good thing. One of the results is that a guarantee that Christ will judge the world. And that's really where Paul gets at at the end of his message. The message of Resurrection Sunday is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That he's no longer in the tomb. That he paid the atoning sacrifice for sinners on the cross. For those who would believe in him. And then he proved, he proved that the Father blessed that. He achieved so much, even in the resurrection. Then he proclaimed the truth to his disciples for 40 days and ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's our celebration today. Every day, every Lord's Day, 
every day of our life as believers. But in this message, in this passage, I want you to see that Christ is coming back to judge. And we ought to respond appropriately to that. To give you the context of why he's even preaching this message, just look back at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked. So he's waiting for some believers to meet with him. He's been traveling through on his missionary journey. And he's observing, it says, in the city that's full of idols. He's walking around and he's seeing these idols everywhere. These these false gods, these pagan gods that the people of Athens were worshiping. That all Greeks and Romans were worshiping at that time. And so in verse 17, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be present. He's out there preaching the gospel. Jew, Gentile, pagan, God-fearer, the ones who acknowledged the Jewish God and feared him. And skip down to verse 19. So some people heard about this. Some powerful people in the city. The leaders, the philosophers, the teachers of the city. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. The Areopagus was named after a hill in Athens. And it became a group of men in time that would listen to different teachings. And they would decide whether that teaching was valid or not. Whether it could be accepted into the Greek way of thinking. Whatever the Greeks believe, the Romans would believe as well. Now if you look at verse 20, it says, uh, They wanted to hear from him because you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. And in parentheses, uh, the author of Acts, Luke here, says, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They want to hear something new. They want to hear some new teaching, something they've never heard before. Entertain us with a new thought, a new religion, a new philosophy. And so Paul says, that's exactly what I want to do. Tell you the gospel, the truth. Not just some new philosophy, but the truth that God saves sinners. So he starts that in verse 22. And we see him run through verse 31. And then he's cut off and not able to finish his sermon. But what I want you to see here today, what I want you to see in this passage, is that it teaches us three responses. There's three responses to the truth of the resurrection that Paul brings out here. And, and these responses, if we do them, if we respond rightly, we will be saved. Saved from that judgment to come. We'll be saved from the wrath of God. That's what Paul wanted for them. He felt compassion for them. They're worshiping idols. They're not going to go to heaven and spend eternal life with God. Paul felt sorry for them. He felt pity. He felt mercy. And he wants them to hear the truth and be saved. Isn't that what we as Christians want? Other people to hear the truth and be saved? That's every sermon in the book of Acts. So let's look at these three responses to the truth of the resurrection. First of all, Paul says, that everyone ought to repent of our sins before it's too late. We'll see this in verse 30. Now's the time to repent, Paul says. The Bible says. Jesus says. Today we say, now's the time to repent. God's calling us all to turn from our sin. God's calling us all to turn to His Son and away from ourselves and our sin. Now you might say, well, today is Resurrection Sunday. It's a, a day when we wear nice colors. Some of us even put on colorful ties and wear nice clothes. And we're going to celebrate. and We might even enjoy a meal. Why are you talking about repentance? That's hard. That makes us sad. But whatever it causes us to feel, it's in the Bible. It's in the gospel. If you don't understand how repentance is connected to the resurrection, then you're missing out on something as a believer. And as an unbeliever, you're missing the whole point of the gospel. Paul says, repent of your sins before it is too late. He has said to them that you worship all these gods and even an unknown God. And let me tell you about this unknown God, this creator of the world. 
And he goes on to talk about how God created mankind. He set the boundaries. His providential sovereignty has created all things and governs them and maintains them, even our life. Therefore, because of that, because God is your creator, having overlooked the times of ignorance. So before he gets to repentance, he's addressing this idea of why haven't they heard this kind of message before? Why have they not ever heard the truth? Why have they not been punished for their sins? So Paul says, having overlooked the times of ignorance. Overlooked here means to to take no notice of, to disregard. Because of God's goodness, because of his forbearance, he's withheld his final judgment on them for a period of time. For a period of time, he has withheld judgment upon the pagan world. The Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, all pagans. Romans 3.25, when speaking of Christ's propitiation on the cross, he says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, God wasn't forgetting the sins of the unbeliever. God wasn't completely ignoring the fact that they sin. He passed over them for a time. He didn't punish all of that sin immediately. If you go back to Acts 14 and verse 16, again, something very similar. In the generations gone by, in past generations, in past ages, in history leading up to this point, He, God, permitted all the nations to go their own ways. He's sovereign over everything, and He let them go their own ways. It was all for His good purpose. But he let them for a time go into their own pagan ways, follow their own hearts. Just read Romans 1 sometime and you'll see how that works. They followed their own desires, their depravity. But what Paul's getting at here is that because of God's mercy and compassion, he did not destroy them. He could have destroyed them. He could have destroyed Adam and Eve immediately. But he was patient. He was forbearing. Even though they were running in sin. Even though Israel ran into sin for generations. God was patient with them. Psalm 78 verse 38. Speaking of Israel. But God being compassionate. Forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger. And did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh. A wind that passes and does not return. Now Israel repented. Or many did at that time. And it says he did not destroy them. He could have wiped them all out in the book of Numbers when they all rebelled against him. And he just let one generation naturally die in the wilderness. He could have wiped out our pagan ancestors so that we never even made it to this point. But he didn't. He was patient. He was forbearing. This doesn't mean that God's wrath is not upon the sinner. It doesn't mean that all pagans are going to go to heaven automatically. That's not what he's saying here. He's just acknowledging the fact that they're still in existence, that they still have breath, that God still allows them to live. God's wrath is always hanging over the sinner until salvation in Christ comes. But what it does mean is that God could have judged them earlier, finally judged them, and wiped them off the face of the earth. But he didn't. In Noah's day, he did, though, didn't he? Remember the flood? In Noah's day? Sin so angered him in the world that he wiped out everybody but Noah's family and that great flood. But he promised not to do that again. Not to do that again with water. We know the Bible tells us that he will eventually judge the whole earth with fire. How many times has God been patient with us? Before we were saved. Think about that. If you're a Christian today, before you were saved, how long was God patient with you? How long did he forbear? Many people die before they hear the gospel. Other people hear the gospel, deny it, and then get into a car wreck. They don't make it out. They die. But if you're a believer today, God has allowed you to live to the point that you heard the gospel, that you could believe, that you could be born again, and all that time since that he's allowed you to grow. That's what Paul's saying, that God is a patient God, forbearing God. That God's wrath is still hanging over the unbeliever, but he's not releasing all of it yet. 
that will come in the final judgment. So Paul says, after saying that God has overlooked that in the past, he is now declaring, look at the rest of verse 30, he's now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. God's got his own timeline. He's ordained every moment, every second, everything that's happened in history, everything that's happening now, everything that will happen in the future. And in his timeline, Christ is going to come back and judge the whole world. And that could happen any day now. We don't know. From the time he ascended, he could come back at any moment. They didn't know then. We don't know now. And so God has sent believers out with the gospel message to proclaim the truth. To say, repent before Christ comes. Repent before he comes back to judge. If you look at this word, declaring, it's actually a little bit weak in the NASB translation. I don't like that translation as much because it's an announcement that commands something. The new Legacy Standard Bible says command. God commands now that everyone should repent. So I like that. It's, it brings out the force of this is a command from God. It's not a suggestion. God's not saying if you want to. God's not saying you should think about it for the next 50 years. Paul is saying God has commanded now. This moment. Because you don't know how much more time you have. Now is the time to repent. Ignorance of God is, is no excuse. Yes, God's let you live, he says, up until this point. But, but ignorance of him is no excuse. That's not going to get you to heaven just because you didn't know who God was. Just because you didn't hear about Jesus. But if you repent, well, that will get you there. If you repent and trust in Christ, then of course, you won't have to go through the judgment. That's the implication. God is going to hold everyone responsible. And the more light that a person sees, the more knowledge, the more truth that they receive, the more judgment that they will have if they deny that truth. You see this over and over throughout the Bible. That's why Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin, some of the cities that he did miracles in. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, completely pagan areas, which occurred in you, he says, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, the worst pagan cities. It will be more tolerable for those cities in the judgment than for you. The more light you receive, the more truth you hear and deny, the harsher the judgment will be. And Paul says it's time for everyone, everywhere, to repent. He doesn't leave anybody out. He doesn't say that there's a person that you really know that's good and does nice things. That's an unbeliever. He says everyone everywhere, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, powerful, weak. Everyone, the wise man, the fool, men, women, children, parents, the single, the married, everyone. Well, what is repentance? We often throw that term around. But in theology, we need to define our terms, don't we? Sometimes people say repentance, but they don't know what it means. Other times people misuse it. If I was to give you a, a definition for the Greek word, noeo, metanoeo, translated repentance. It's a true sorrow for sin. It's a turning away. So not just sorrow, but a turning away from it too. And a genuine commitment to forsake sin and follow Christ. You're sorry over it. You feel bad about it. But it doesn't stop there. No, it's a turning away from it now. So there's my sin. I look at it. I consider it. I feel regret about it. I turn away from it. And then I forsake it. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to go back to my sin. And I'm now headed a different direction. That's towards Christ. That's the idea here of metanoeo. And all throughout the New Testament, that Greek word shows up. What about faith? Where's faith in this, Paul? Where is it? Well, he doesn't have to say it because it goes along with repentance. If you turn from your sin and turn to Christ, that is faith. And if you fully trust and have faith in Christ, then it's implied that you're going to turn from your sin. So often you'll see the apostles using one or the other or even both. You could even say the message of repentance is the gospel. 
That's what Jesus said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't even say have faith at that point. There were other times he said that. He just said repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He later said in Luke 13 that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He even condemned whole cities for not repenting. He said Nineveh, that pagan city, that Assyrian pagan city repented in Jonah's day. We ought to repent as well. The apostles preached that same message of repentance. Repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's in Acts 2. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's not saying baptism saves you. He's saying that's a sign of what's happened. That's a sign. Believe in Christ. That's implied in this idea of repentance as well. Again, in Acts 3.19, another sermon. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In Ephesus, he says in Acts 20, that while he was in Ephesus, Paul said, my whole ministry was preaching the gospel and teaching the Bible. And he says, I'm solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of that repentance toward God and faith and our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have the gospel without repentance. He cares for these people in Athens. And he wants to tell them the truth. They need to turn from their sin. That was one of the last things that Jesus said before he ascended. He said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again. There is a resurrection. Rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now, the world doesn't want to hear about repentance. Sometimes we don't even want to hear about repentance. But that's the message. Jesus said, that's the message that you take. Yeah, there are benefits. There's heaven. There's eternal life. But first, we've got to tell them they need to repent. We have to tell them the truth. That's what Paul's doing. To be forgiven means that you must repent. It's not an emotion. It's not just feeling bad. It's not saying a quick promise to God. I promise God I'll never do that again. That, that's not repentance. It's not penance like the Catholic Church teaches where you've got to do all of these things to pay for your sin. That's not repentance. It's not just changing your mind about who Jesus is. One day you think Jesus is a bad guy. The next day you think he's a good guy. That's not repentance. Some of these things might be associated with repentance, but it's not repentance. It's not a work of man. It's not something you can work on and acquire. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't earn salvation through repentance. You can't say, God, I've repented. You better give me salvation. It's not how it works. You repent, you have faith, and instantly, instantly, you are in Christ. Because God has done something in your heart. He has regenerated you. It's not a feeling of regret or simply being sorry, but a turning from sin and turning to Christ. I like what the writer and pastor Kevin DeYoung says. He says there's an eternal difference between regret and repentance. Regret feels bad about past sins. Repentance turns away from past sins. Regret looks to our own circumstances. Repentance looks to God. Most of us are content with just regret. We just feel bad for a while. We have a good cry, enjoy the cathartic experience, bewail our sin, and talk about how sorry we are. But we don't want to change. We don't want to deal with God. Godly grief is a fruitful and effective emotion. The Spirit uses it to spur us to action. Starts with an emotion, sure, but it spurs us to action, he says, to make us zealous for good works and helps us run from sin and start walking in the opposite direction direction. So Paul says it's now time to repent. A new age has come. Christ has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended to the Father. Now the message goes out. It's not just to Israel now. It's to all the nations, all the world, everywhere that man must repent. Secondly though, he goes even deeper here. Number two, the second truth that the resurrection should remind us of according to this passage is know that Christ will judge the world. 
Now, it's one thing to talk about repentance. That doesn't always make us very happy, but to talk about judgment, it is even harder to accept in the world today. It shouldn't be for Christians, but it is according to the world. That's what Paul says in verse 31 here. Why? Why repent? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. God has fixed a day. Again, this idea that he's providentially set a time. Like King Solomon said, there's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven. There's a time for judgment. You may not see it now. You may wonder, why, Lord, why does evil and sin and wickedness continue? When's it going to stop? It will stop in God's time. He has predestined the day in his timeline. It will be done according to his righteousness, Paul says here. It's not just a judgment, but it's according to righteousness. God's holy. He's perfect. He won't do anything unfair. He will consider every sin that you've ever committed if you're not in Christ. That's fair because God's perfectly holy and one sin against him, just one, as if any of us ever commit just one sin, right? But just one sin against an infinite God means an infinite punishment. Because how can you ever be punished enough for sinning against an infinite being? It's not possible. And it's going to be righteous. It's going to be fair. Sometimes people say, don't judge me. God will judge me. It's kind of a popular saying in our day. I think they've even made some rap songs about, don't judge me. God will judge me. That's not a good thing. God's judgment will be much harsher than anything we ever can say to somebody about their sin. And he says, God has fixed a day or God will judge the world in righteousness through a man. This is Christ here. Through a man whom he has appointed. This man that Paul references here is Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The perfect God-man, the one who lived a perfect life, who died for sinners, who was raised again on the third day, who ascended to the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, waiting to come back, waiting for God's timeline to be fulfilled. And he knew this. Jesus knew what would happen. He said in John 5, 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Often when we think about Jesus, when the world presents Jesus, it's a very friendly Jesus, a very loving Jesus. And he is loving to his people. It's, it's a Jesus almost, though, that blesses every sin we commit, is what people think in the world of Jesus. A good guy, someone who's always there to hug us. He is the best of friends to the believer. He is the Savior. He is our advocate. He is our mediator. But he's also the judge of all mankind. And we can't separate those truths. We can't take God's love over here and focus on it all the time that we forget about God's wrath towards sin and sinners. We have to hold both those truths together. There are times when we think about God's love more, but we have to remember God is angry over sin. And that's not just the God of fire and brimstone preachers and churches. That's the God of the Bible. It says over and over that he will not tolerate sin. Well, more about this man, Paul says. There's a man, and he doesn't mention Jesus' name at that point. But he says that God has furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So when you're reading through Acts, you may not see this. You may not have stopped. I probably read through Acts many times in my Christian life. And I never stopped on this verse and realized that the resurrection proves Christ will judge. The word for proof here is, is a token. It means a token in Greek offered as a guarantee, a pledge. God is putting a pledge toward that final judgment by saying Christ was raised from the dead. Look at the resurrection. Who could do that? Who could raise the dead? Only God. A God that powerful who can raise the dead? He can certainly raise the dead for judgment, can he? He can certainly bring about judgment. He can certainly appoint whoever he wants as the judge. 
See, a human judge would never work. A human judge can only judge an individual according to human law. But who can judge according to God's law? Only God. That's why we have the God-man, the perfect judge, Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians says he indeed will come back and judge. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 8. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel comes with the command to believe. It's not just if you're having a great day and feel good and want to believe, do it. No, you have to or you're going to suffer that kind of punishment. If you don't obey the gospel, he's coming back with flaming fire and his angels. Now, maybe you grew up in a church that was fire and brimstone. Maybe they just hammer judgment every day. We don't preach on it every single sermon, but it's there in Scripture. It's not something we should just cast off to our youth when we went to that church where the preacher yelled a lot. It's right there in Scripture over and over. Why? Because God is merciful. He wants to warn us. He's patient. He's forbearing. Now, if you were reading Acts from the beginning, as let's say one of the first people to read the book of Acts when it came out, you would already see this a couple of times. Go back to chapter 2. You would have seen this message over and over that the resurrection is associated with the judgment. Chapter 2 and verse 32. This Jesus, now here he's talking to Jews and in Jerusalem, so they know who Jesus is. He's going to mention him by name. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So there's the resurrection. Verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So if he's at the right hand of God, this must be God. It is. It's the Son of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And the idea that he's sitting at the right hand of God, he's on the throne. The right hand, right next, in the place of power, in the place of judgment. Now skip forward to chapter 10 of Acts. Chapter 10, verse 40. And we see this again. It shows up again in a sermon. Paul says, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. He was raised again and people could see him. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us the Christians, the apostles, the disciples. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. There it is again. Resurrection, the coming judgment. Yes, as a believer, we rejoice at all the benefits that we receive in Christ, and it's proven by his resurrection. But it also reminds us there is a coming judgment. And we're to proclaim that to the world. We're to tell others. The resurrection of Christ guaranteed Jesus will judge the world in the end. So according to this passage in Acts 17, Jesus rose from the grave for a dual purpose, didn't he? To save those who repent. That's why Paul's telling them to repent. Repent because the judgment's coming. If you want to get out of the judgment, you repent. Not as a free ticket to heaven, but because you love the Lord and have turned from your sin. That's one purpose. But the other side of the coin is he also rose from the dead as a sign that he would judge those who do not repent. So either way, Christ is either your savior or your judge. Which one? That's what we all have to decide, right? For ourselves, which one is he? Is he our savior or is he our judge? Today, which one is he? When you see Christ, what do you think? Not just what does the world tell you, But according to the Bible, is he your savior or is he your judge? Of course, he will judge believers in what's called a Bema seat judgment. He will judge believers for their time, for their resources, and then he will reward them. That's a rewards judgment. 
He does not judge believers according to their sin. He does not. That's why Paul says, repent. So you won't be judged according to your sin. Now the third thing, the third thing that Paul mentions here, the third truth that we see from the resurrection that he's including here, or we'll just say Luke's including because Luke records what happens after the sermon, is trust in the Lord and follow Him. Now that's implied in repentance, but now we get to see what happens. Some people today completely reject Christianity. They just completely reject Christian beliefs. They hear about it. They say it's crazy. I don't want to do it. Some people are adamant atheists and they fight as much as they can. Changing laws, trying to to, to hurt Christians, Christian organizations. Just this week there was a lawsuit filed against Christian colleges. And these colleges have things in their statements of faith against living a homosexual lifestyle, against transgender changes that people make to their body. And there's a lawsuit against the government to change that in Christian schools. But there's also people who don't necessarily fight against Christianity. They just ignore it. It's just no big deal. Go on with my life. I'm busy. I've got things to do. But to be saved from the coming judgment, we have to repent and put our complete trust in the Lord. And we see both of those results here in the rest of this passage. Just as Paul gets his sermon really going, he's convicted them about their worship. He's told them about God, the creator who's created them and gives them life and breath and being. And he gets to the fact that they need to repent because Jesus was raised from the dead, which will prove there's a coming judgment. And you can just imagine where he might go after that. And they cut him off. They cut him off before he gets to really the person and work of Christ in more detail. He's interrupted. Look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. They'd heard enough. Enough of this, Paul. We were with you, at least listening to you, until you got to that. Let's talk about the resurrection. It's too much for them. They're done with it. The Greeks and Romans of Paul's day, they believe that the soul might live on forever but it's just a soul sleep. Most believe that the soul would just die. There was a few philosophical ideas of an immortality of the soul, but many just believe the soul ceased to exist at death. In fact, one historian says that the Greeks often joked about annihilation at death, going out of existence. They joked about it. They thought it was funny. They even put things on their tombstones about it. A common saying to put on your tombstone back then was, I was not, I am not, I care not. They've gone, they've disappeared, they don't exist, they don't care anymore. And so when they hear Paul talking about the resurrection, that's not in line with what they believe. It challenges them too much to change their way of thinking. That's too much, Paul, stop. That's a line in the sand. We're elite philosophers here. We know what we're talking about. We have PhDs. We teach all these students at the local Athens College, the School of Philosophy. That would be career suicide for them to believe in the resurrection. They would be mocked. They would be laughed at. No one would want to be around them. Much like today in colleges, if a professor rejects evolutionary theory in a secular school, what would happen to them? They're mocked. They're laughed at. And eventually they find some way to get them out of the school, out of teaching there. So people sneered at him when he spoke of the resurrection. To sneer here means to engage in mockery, to scoff at. Back in chapter 2, where Peter is preaching that first great sermon in Jerusalem. They even speak in tongues. God allows them at that point to speak in tongues. And people are mocking, same word there. They were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. Bunch of drunkards out there mumbling and bumbling. That's why this is going on. Well, let's go back to Acts 17, verse 18. They had already made up their mind about Paul. They wanted to hear him out, but they had already decided what kind of man he was. It says also some of the Epicurean, that's the group of philosophers that said, live it up, live your best. 
enjoy everything you want in life, pleasure. And the Stoic philosophers, these are the ones that said, no, don't live it up. Sit back and think about wisdom and study wisdom and be wise. Don't overreact. Be Stoic, we might say today. Both of these groups were conversing with Paul out in the streets in the marketplace. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He's a babbler. He's a seed picker is what it means in Greek. He's just out there just sort of picking seeds, picking up seeds here and there, throwing them at us. Little seeds of this, seeds of that, some new teaching, strange deities, all because of the resurrection. They didn't like that teaching. So they sneered at him, and they sneered at him when he was done as well. They cut him off. That's it. They rejected the gospel message. Just like so many people today. They hear the gospel and they say, I can't believe it. I won't accept it. That's enough. Biography that came out on R.C. Sproul. And in it, his childhood pastor is quoted. And the childhood pastor said something to R.C. Sproul. When, when Sproul got into college and got saved, his childhood pastor must have heard about it. And he says, if you believe in the physical resurrection of Christ, you're a fool. That's what he told R.C. You're a fool. He was a pastor in a liberal denomination, which is what Sproul grew up in. A few years ago over here in Austin, uh, we had a guy in the news and the papers. That, of course, the, the media loves this kind of stuff when a pastor says this. He was talking about how hard it is at this time of year to preach anything because he doesn't believe in the resurrection. He doesn't believe it could have happened. And then sort of uh, the media, the Christian media, social media, said that guy's not a believer. You can't be a believer and not believe in the resurrection. And he sneered. He mocked. He published another article. Oh, I'm going to hell now. Everybody says I'm going to hell. It's going to be so bad. They made fun of the idea that people are going to hell if they deny the basics of the gospel. They were sneering at Paul. Now, according to a legend back then, the Areopagus, the court, was established by Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And her fellow god, Apollo, had said, once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. So their mind was closed. They accepted whatever the belief of that day was. The zeitgeist, the culture of the day, was there is no resurrection. We've had enough. But Paul didn't hesitate, did he, to proclaim the truth? He didn't say, you know, I don't think they're going to believe in the resurrection. So I'm going to drop that part out of my gospel message. I think I'll leave it out. He didn't say that. He didn't soft pedal it. He didn't change any of his message. He proclaimed the truth. Now, it should have driven them to repentance, but they mocked. They mocked because the world thinks we're foolish. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We are fools for Christ's sake. Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, it's a stumbling block. They fall over. They can't believe that Messiah has already come. To Gentiles, it's foolishness. doesn't make sense. doesn't fit with their worldview. They've already got things figured out. It's foolishness. But to those who are the called, to those God has called to salvation, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. The world says it's foolish. Until a person gets saved, then they realize, wow, that's the wisest thing that an all-wise God could have ever done. But others, some sneered, some mocked at him. Others said, we'll hear you again concerning this. This is a softer rejection. We'll put it off. I've got plenty of time. We're here all day, Paul. Maybe we'll have you back next week, next month. Come back and see us when you come through next year. We're trying to be a little bit nicer about the rejection. This is the same thing that happened back in Acts 24. We see a a governor, Felix. Some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, 
Felix became frightened. He'd had enough. He didn't want to hear any more. And he said, go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. Just go away. That's enough. Maybe I'll have you back again some other time. At the same time, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by the next governor, Festus. So he didn't want to hear about the judgment to come. But what about Festus? What about Festus? We'll skip over to Acts 26. Paul's giving his testimony. He's preaching the Old Testament scriptures. A Jewish king, Agrippa, is there with Festus. Now look at 26.23. He's talking about how that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jews and the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul goes on to say, I'm not out of my mind. I'm just preaching the gospel. But, but Festus had heard enough. He had heard enough. Paul, you're out of your mind. Sometimes people say, I'll, I'll make time later to follow Christ. I'll make time later to be a Christian. I've, I've had people tell me that. When I get older, I'll make peace with God. I'll get right with God. Most of them never do. They put it off. They think they have time. Some of them die before they ever hear the gospel again. Some of them die before they're convicted of their sin. So Paul, it says in verse 33, he went out of their midst. He left. He didn't stay. He didn't try to argue with them all day. He didn't turn the smoke machine on and the lights and get the band out and say, let's try it one more time. Maybe that'll convince you. He preached the gospel. They rejected it. He left. He left. Now maybe other Christians came later and preached the gospel after the Bible was complete. We don't have a record of that, but Paul was done. He left. There's just a window of time to hear the message and repent. We all have a window of time in our life. And then our life ends. And we have to respond. If you feel conviction today, then you need to respond. Don't be like that guy who was living next to Mount St. Helens. In 1980. And for two months, they said that volcano is going to blow. And he was an old guy, and he just said, I don't care. I don't believe it. My house will be fine. It's just a little bit of smoke, a little bit of ash. It's done. Nothing could move him. He said, a whole mule train can't drag me out of my cabin on the side of this mountain. Well, on May 18th, when the, when the volcano blew, he was completely vaporized in an instant, covered with lava, covered with ash. He was kind of a celebrity for a couple of months, you know. Conservative guy won't move from my land, then gone. Because he didn't believe that that volcano was going to blow. Some of these people here didn't believe that the judgment was going to come. But some men joined him, verse 34. Some did believe. Some did believe. God did bring about fruit from the preaching of the word. They joined with Paul, it says. They closely associated with him. Even in the midst of a hostile culture, they join with him. Those who believe in his death and resurrection are promised eternal life. They were saved. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not perish, even if he dies. He will live. He will live even if he dies. And now we get a couple of names, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. Areopagite is a person who served on the council that met at the Areopagus. And a woman named Domerus and others with them. So Dionysus was a man of wealth. He was a man of money. He had elite status in the city. He was on the council. They would probably would have mocked him after he believed. But yet he did because God changed his heart. God made it so that he wanted to have faith. He decided he loved the Lord and wanted to follow him and turn from his sin, all based on what Paul had said. Now, there's no church planted here. Acts doesn't record a church being planted like it does in other places. But later, church history tells us that Dionysius becomes the first pastor in Athens. So one of the first men to be saved, a man of status, a man of wealth, 
turns his life around, follows Christ, and eventually shepherds the church there when it is eventually planted. We don't know much about Damaris, except that God saves men and women. God saves all people. Some say that her name doesn't even fit with the people of Athens, so maybe she was just visiting, happened upon this scene, heard the gospel, and believed. But her name's in the Bible forever. Forever. They had to give up much to associate with Paul and become a Christian. That's why Jesus says you've got to leave it all behind and follow him. I don't think Dionysius gave up every single thing he owned, but he turned away from trusting in that and trusted in Christ. John MacArthur in his book, Hard to Believe, says becoming a Christian means being sick of your sin, longing for forgiveness, being rescued from the present evil and future hell, and affirming your commitment to the Lordship of Christ to the point where you're willing to forsake everything. It isn't just holding up your hand or walking down an aisle and saying, I love Jesus. It's not easy. It is not user-friendly. It's not seeker-sensitive. It isn't a rosy, perfect world where Jesus gives you whatever you want. It's hard. It's sacrificial. It will cost you everything. Not that you can buy it, but you've got to leave that stuff and now focus on one thing, Christ. So having faith in Christ as the Savior of the world, they were saved. They turned from their sin. It means that as a believer, you're constantly and always depending on Him. He is your righteousness. And there's no other way to get to God. So the message of the resurrection is that we ought to repent. We ought to know that a judgment is coming and Christ is going to be that judge. And we ought to know that we should trust in Christ. He's our Savior. It's only through His resurrection that we have the promise of eternal life. Why wouldn't you trust in Christ? It makes no sense to hear a message like this if you're an unbeliever or let's say a false believer, somebody who says you're a Christian but you're really not. It makes no sense to hear this message and not trust in Him. Children, it makes no sense to be here today, to to be part of a Christian family that brings you to church to hear the Bible and to not trust in Christ. Why wouldn't you? There's a judgment coming. And the resurrection gives us so much hope. So much hope. John Calvin, the reformer, said the resurrection of Christ is the most important article of our faith. And without it, the hope of eternal life is extinguished. Trust in Christ. Believe in him. Turn to him. Lord, we do pray that that would be the case here today. As we've heard your word, as we've considered who we are and who you are, Grant repentance among us. Even the believers here need to repent of their sins today and this week and this month. Lord, but grant saving faith and repentance for those here today that are not in Christ. We know you can do that. You do it all the time. And so we ask that it would be among us, from this message, from your word going out, that people would come to faith. Let us trust in him all the more because he is our hope and our righteousness. Amen.